Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. My guest today is Alec Lebrano, travel writer, author of uh, three wonderful books, uh, others, but three that I particularly love, Hungry for Paris, uh, ever, should be everyone's guide to dining in this great city, Hungry for France, I suspect Hungry for the World is on its way, but before that, he's just finished a delightful, charming memoir called My Place at the Table. Alec, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you very much, Terrence. Yeah, I, uh, well, you know, now since I know you and I got a kick out of all of this, we've known each other for about a dozen years just prior to my coming here, when you were still writing for Gourmet, which is another story. But I, I, I suspect that your uh, literary uh, career, your travel writing career, uh, was inspired by Miss Armitage uh, and the uh, famous BLT sandwich. You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, this, the, uh, this is the introductory essay to my book, My Place at the Table, uh, a recipe for a delicious life in Paris, which was just published by Howard Mifflin uh, Harcourt on June 1st. Um, and in the essay, it's a, it's a, a, what I, what I, the story I tell is that uh, I was in grade school, and uh, my second grade teacher asked us to write an, a, a little paper about something that we really loved. Uh, and I, you know, I hesitated, and I thought, well, I could write about it. But we weren't we weren't allowed to write about books. I was a real bookworm, so we couldn't we couldn't write about books. And I was thinking, well, what could I write about? And I thought about the apple tree that I liked to climb up into, and a couple other things. Uh, and then, but what I really thought about was the sandwich that I had for lunch the the Saturday before, which was you know I mean that all American uh, bacon, lettuce, and tomato with a big slick of mayonnaise on toasted rye bread, which I still think is one of the most delicious things to eat in the whole world. Um, so I wrote about that, and um, you know it was a, my little passionate praise of of the glories of a, a BLT. And you were about uh, nine years old at the time. Um, second grade is what? Second seven, grade seven is, years old, seven. Yes, or eight or something like that. But um, I just did, I just explained how the flavors and the textures of that sandwich were so, so perfect. You know, I mean, the salt and the juice of the tomato and the acidity and the mayonnaise and all, everything, the caraway and, and seeds and the bacon, rye bread. Which we, and, which we can't get here. Can unfortunately, that's, <laughs> I have not found it. Not, it does not crisp up, you know. 30, 30 years <laughs> in search of a strip of crispy bacon. <laughs> it's another um, book. <laughs> well, you know, but here we have Lardon. You know, I suppose you can make a, sand a sandwich with Lardon if you had to. Sure. But um, anyway, uh, the paper was, um, I got an A on the paper, and my mother was all excited and everything else. It was not well received by my father, who said, you know, this is a, a dopey thing to have done. How could you be writing about a sandwich? Why didn't you write about your dog? Or, uh, you know, I mean, for God's sakes, why did you write about a sandwich? And I just said, you know, it was it was my the first thing that came to my mind. Um, I thought about the apple tree, and he said, next time write about the apple tree. Um, you know, I think my early interest in food um, my father's family was very literary. His father was the um, the fiction editor of The New Yorker for many years. Wow. And um, in that milieu, I mean, people, you know, people, people sat down at the table and, uh, and we ate well. Uh, but on both sides of my family, my father's family is originally from New Orleans and my mother's family is from Boston. Uh, the New Orleans side had much better food, needless to say, but food was not deemed to be a particularly, it was not deemed to be an appropriate subject for serious writing. Um, well, at in least spite of in, your last name, you come from a, a largely puritanical background or well, it's was, true. waspy background. A very waspy <clears throat> background. Um, but, you know, Terrence, I always say to people, thank God in heaven, I'm about... Uh, it was my great 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 grandfather who's uh, left Italy and married the the daughter of the last French governor of Louisiana and had eight sons. Um, so I'm about one sixteenth uh, Franco uh, Spanish or Franco Italian. Um, but what I always say to people is, thank God for that because you know it's kind of like the spice in the stew. You know, if I did not have that little genetic pinch of 
French and Italian, um, I would be what white bread. Um, you know, and on the flip side of that, I always, you know, with my brothers and my sister, we always talked about the the meals we ate at my uh, grandmother's house in Boston. Uh, and she had a cook who was from Nova Scotia. And the meals ran to things like codfish, cauliflower, and rice on a white plate uh, with nothing. I mean, just cooked. And we would call them the white meals. And they were guaranteed to be the most, uh, the saddest, flavor-free, uh, over, I mean, just good Lord. Well, how, you, know. you know, how joyful that you escaped that and you found this great pleasure in eating. Um, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, as, to go back to my ode to a BLT, um, I was always fascinated by food, you know? I mean, I, I like spending time in the kitchen. Um, <clears throat> and I really, I think that for me, um, also, growing up in the Northeast, when I grew up there, I grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut outside New York City. Um, the Northeast was great territory for anybody who was interested in food, because as Americans, we have a more than a you know fleeting knowledge of many, many, many different kitchens. Uh, you know, I mean, I had classmates, uh, um, you know, who, whose grandmothers came from Vienna, who made beautiful baked goods. There was a lot of Italian food. There was Polish food. There was everything. Um, and so, you know, we ate a very, you know, quite a varied diet. And, uh, you know, as Americans, we, and there was an excellent Chinese restaurant downtown, um, flavor and food um, sort of became my poetry at a very young age. It was also an ethnic mosaic. I mean, you go to Boston and you're looking at Portuguese fishermen bringing in the lobsters and the scrod and uh, somehow uh, colorful cultures also reflect uh, the food that we learn to eat in the, in, in the Northeast. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I also think that food, you know, I always say, um, and this is a, why food's a large part of my travel writing, anywhere in the world that you, I mean, you're, you're going to eat. Um, and food is a way of communicating, even when you don't have a language in common with someone, it's a way of, of offering hospitality, of, of showing acceptance of, you know, uh, inclusiveness, affection, um, you know, what kinder thing is there to do than to feed a stranger? I mean, I always think one of my favorite things that ever happened that way was uh, a long time ago when I was living in London, um, and way before Google Maps, I was driving from Algarve, which is in the south, to Lisbon to pick somebody up at the airport. And I didn't have a map, and um, nor were there any to buy, so I just figured I'll follow the Lisboa signs um, until I realized that in the little hot Renault station wagon without air conditioning, that I'd just gone in a huge hour-and-a-half circle. Um, so I finally thought, okay, pulled over, went to do a restaurant, start for lunch. I was dressed like somebody going to the beach. I looked ridiculous. And there were all these men in dark suits sitting at a table uh, with briefcases. And I'm standing in the door and somebody's drawing glasses behind the counter. And I, you know, sort of made the gesture of eating. And one of the doctors, it turns out they were doctors. One of the doctors stood up, spoke English and said, come eat with us. Um, and he'd done his medical school in Chicago. Um, they were having the most delicious chicken. They had, you know, fried potatoes. It was an act of such incredible kindness and then they gave you know they gave me a hand-drawn map so that i could find my way from uh wherever i was to to lisbon um you know it's food is you know food and hospitality are uh, you know go hand in hand and uh food is also a great fuel for storytelling well that's something that it's a reflection of generosity you know when you invite someone into your home and you prepare a meal for them. Uh, there's more love and, and attention and tenderness than uh, taking someone to a great restaurant, which is a nice thing to do. Don't get me wrong. And, and I think what those uh, guys had offered to you was that also they they saw you as somewhat of a stranger, perhaps somewhat bewildered. They may have caught the vibe uh, and, and made you feel comfortable. And uh, how how nice is that for you and for them? Well, exactly. And you know, I mean, from that point on, I mean, I was very lucky. I um, my mother, uh, I had two, the two people who you asked me before, how did you, you know, how did you become so curious about the world? Um, I had a grandmother, my paternal grandmother was an amazing lady. I mean, she lived in 
um, Berlin and Alexandria and Egypt, and she spoke 10 languages, and she ended up, you know, uh, married to my fiction New York. Sounds like your Jewish grandmother. Um, that was that. That was. I might have had a Jewish great grandmother from Antwerp, but that's a whole other story. Um, but um, no, this was my dad's mom, and she was the one who was married to the New Yorker fiction editor, um, and she was an incredibly worldly lady, incredibly well traveled. And as soon as she, you know, my grandfather died, she traveled nonstop for you know six months of the year. I mean, she'd take a a freighter from Newark through the Panama Canal and spent three months in, in Lima. You know, I mean, she was an intrepid traveler. And um, so, you know, we get smeared postcards from her, you know, her sitting on the back of a camel, her, you know, scrambling up the Andes to see Machu Picchu. Um, and so she was, she was amazing. And she was, you know, a little tiny elegant lady who had this, this fierce curiosity about the world and who was absolutely fearless. And on the other side, my mother, who's a brilliant, brilliant lady, you know, uh, Phi Beta Kappa from Mount Holyoke in philosophy and art history, uh, when her, when her dragon-like mother in Boston died and left her her money, she um, announced that we were spending the summer in Europe. And boy, did we. I mean, she took me and my two brothers uh, we did the first six weeks by ourselves, um, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, and a cruise up the Rhine to Cologne. And then we met my father and sister in um, Paris, and we traveled in France and across the channel and, you know, went all the way up to Scotland and flew home from there. And, you know, we did it in the grand way. I mean, things kind of slowed down when Dad got here, but... You know, we stayed in an amazing hotel overlooking the Grand Canal. All of a sudden, Mom, who was a suburban mom who was careful with money and cut coupons, was suddenly saying, sure, you know, I mean, um, yeah, if you'd like to have the lobster, you know, the roast lobster, that's just fine with me. Why don't you have two, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was an amazing trip. Was, was, there fine. A, was there a seminal uh, culinary experience on that trip that may have inspired you? Well, that really happened when I got to Paris. I mean, you know, I, I had another, I had an aunt who was a book editor in New York who gave me a, a series of books about <clears throat> the lives of little children in different countries, nor, you know, brother and sister in Norway and Spain and Italy and, and France. And the French kids, um, the, that book opened with them getting on the train in Paris to go see the grandparents who had a, 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 a hotel in Nice. And they had a meal in the dining car. They had uh, asparagus with hollandaise sauce and roast beef with uh, Madeira mushroom sauce, um, uh, chocolate mousse. You know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, Jesus, in a train. Wow. And um, and then you know, there was the, the book was filled with lush descriptions of everything they ate: the croissant, the uh, the food in Provence everything in Paris. Um, and the lesson I've pulled from this book was that France was the country, is the country where everything is delicious. So on that trip, that first seminal trip to Europe, I um, couldn't wait to get to France and find out if it was true. Um, and it was and is true. Yes, um, almost everything in France is pretty damn delicious. Um, but the you know, the, the boom moment happened at a bistro in the Latin Quarter when I tried my first real French uh, boeuf bourguignon. Mm. And I just couldn't, I couldn't understand how anybody could create flavor of that depth and resonance. And it was like dropping a bomb in a well, you know. You wondered how they extracted the ketchup that our mothers or my mother put in her uh, quote-unquote boeuf bourguignon, or beef <laughs> stew as we called it in Brooklyn. Exactly. Well, uh, I, we called it beef burgundy in Connecticut. Uh, you know, well, mom so tried. But <laughs> <laughs> well, she made it with Holland House red wine. Oh, yes. um, <laughs> but um, so, you know, I mean, that was and even as we were, you know, walking the streets of Paris and I'd stop and look in the windows of cheese shops or pastry stores and stuff. And I just could not believe the 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 beauty and the variety and the, the passion that was obviously ambient in this in the most beautiful city I'd ever seen, um, where people cared so much about what they ate, you know, and uh, the morning that we went to the Garden of Noel to take the train to Calais and the ferry to England, 
I had a lump in my throat because I just felt, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to take, but I've got to get back here. I mean, I just thought this is a place where I think I belong here, you know, and I want to come back and eat the whole city. And that's well, exactly I think it, what I ended I, up doing. I, I think it took John Fairchild, who for some reason saw you as a, a writer of men's fashions. And now don't take this in a disrespectful fashion, Alex. I, I know that you're not going to wear a plaid jacket with a striped shirt. But I, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily sure describe you as the epitome of the world's uh, most sophisticated dresser. So, how did that experience go? Well, I think I think that I would I would describe myself as uh, um, I don't know what Renegade Brooks Brothers. That might be the best way to put it. I've well, never, much you know, nicer I mean, than the way I described it. Well, you know, my, my, my father was a very elegant dresser, but uh, in any event, no, I was living in London working as a writer and an editor there. Um, and I got wind of the fact that there was a job opening in Paris at the, you know, at the offices of Fairchild Publications, which publishes Women's Wear Daily and W and um, they had a menswear newspaper. A daily this, news record. I, I read it when I was in the business. Right, exactly. It was called DNR. And, DNR. Uh, this was the job, European editor for DNR, that I applied for. I had worked for Fairchild very briefly once in New York, so they, you know, they knew me. But um, um, to my astonishment, you know, when I went to see Mr. Fairchild, he said, uh, you know, why? I, I was nervous about it because I finally just blurted out that I said, you know, I really don't know very much about fashion. And he said, well, I could tell that when you walked in here. And uh, you know, I mean, he was a pretty sh sharp guy. Um, and he said, "You know, don't worry about it, Alec, because you, you know, you learn it, and this will work out. Or it's, there's no problem. I'll fire you." So, um, you know, he's a tender kind of a guy. Um, but so, you know, I packed up my packed up my great big bag and got on a train and moved to Paris. And I didn't know anyone here. And my high school French was crap. Um, and the people in the office were unwelcoming, to put it politely. Um, and um, everything started to make a little bit of sense. You know, when I bought a couple of restaurant guidebooks, I was living on the company expense account and sort of eating, you know, eating crappy meals in cafes. When it suddenly occurred to me, why are you doing this? I mean, you should be using this opportunity to discover some of the better restaurants in Paris. So I bought the guidebooks and started going out on my own, which is a real breakthrough, and uh, and fell madly in love, even more madly in love with Paris than I already was. Well, you said you went out alone. You should describe, uh, you, you talk in the book about uh, perhaps your first meal totally alone in Paris once you'd had the job, and the kindness uh, of a waiter who really set set the table for you going forward. Talk about that meal and, and particularly the kindness of that waiter. Well, you know, that that was, I mean, I was in, especially in those days, I mean, Americans, I think, uh, Americans were used to eating, a, you know, a meal alone at a counter, <coughs> excuse me, like a lunch counter or, you know, used to be in, um, yeah, hamburger and now fries it's like, and you know, whatever, anything like that, and, you know, coffee shop or whatever. Um, but the idea of going and sitting down by yourself at a, in a, you know, a, restaurant tablecloths i'd never done that before and i didn't know anybody who had um and so you know when the night that night it was a beautiful indian summer night when i was walking across the the pont alexandre trois to the restaurant i mean i'd made the reservation and i wasn't quite sure how to dress for it and you know i just i don't know i'd never gone out on a saturday night to a nice restaurant in paris before um and I got there, and you know the they, the restaurant was busy, and it took a while for me to finally be seated. And uh, I was self conscious, you know. I mean, and uh, but the waiter finally, you know, I mean, it was he was unbelievably patient. Um, he seated my confidence. I mean, you know, he he made it. As though it was as though our project was to make sure that I had the best meal possible. This was what we were going to accomplish together, you know. Um, he answered questions before I asked them. He went away and came back with a basket filled with sep mushrooms mm. to show me that they were in season. Um, he suggested, a, you know, a nice little bottle of wine to go along with the whole thing. Um, 
finally I took off it was my a coat. Vouvray, I think. It was a Vouvray. Yeah. And um, finally I took off my blazer because I was roasting to death and hung it over the chair. And he very discreetly came and took it and hung it up somewhere else. Um, and the next thing I knew, there I was in a, a beautiful, busy, you know, Paris restaurant all by myself, having an absolutely wonderful time. And suddenly I didn't feel as though I was on the outside looking in. Suddenly I was actually part of Parisian life. And it was a, such a, I mean, from a gastronomic point of view, it was one of the best meals I've ever had. But it was also from an emotional point of view, it was exultant because it, it finally led me to believe that I could actually create a life here. And, uh, you know, that somehow it wouldn't be easy between the language and learning a new culture um, and that job. But, um, you know, it just, it, it, that, that night gave me the, the a jolt of happiness that sort of pushed me forward. You know, since waiters here are not, you know, uh, college sophomores working on a job, hi, my name is Jonathan, I'll, I'll be your waiter tonight and tend to be around for a long period of time. Uh, did you ever have an opportunity, opportunity to go back and check this guy out again and, and thank him for his kindness? Unfortunately, I never did, Terrence. And I, you know, when I wrote that, when I was writing about that meal, I mean, he was, he was pretty young. Um, that restaurant, which was right on the Quai d'Orsay, mm -hmm. um, closed about, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago. Okay. Um, He's uh, probably out there somewhere. I hope mm -hmm. that the way the world works today, um, I, it would be wonderful to think that he would he would hear of that chapter and and you know uh, realize that I was offering my thanks to him many years later. Uh, you know the the it is true what you say. I mean the, the that whole uh, template of service and and hospitality in France is so different from. You know, my name's Cindy, and I'm your server. And, well, no, you and I have talked about this. You know, there's this quality here of called rapport qualité prix. And I don't know what this meal cost, but whatever it was, it was certainly worth it. Where you can have a fabulous meal for 25 euros, where you walk in and you feel like you own the place, uh, and the warmth of the the the, the woman or the mother who's coming to to seat you. And you can have a 300 dollar meal that is so irritating from the minute you walk in the door. And it's all that. It's that sense of, of welcome, the sense that people are happy you're there. It's like when you talk to someone at a party and they're not looking at you. That guy was involved in your experience. His his job that night was to make sure you had a memorable experience, which you did. Well, that's exactly what it was. And I think um, you put your finger on something else when people ask me how I evaluate a restaurant. And I say that, you know, it starts the minute you open the door. I mean, the hospitality cues, the, the presence, the presence of hospitality or the absence of it cues the way that you're going to react to everything that happens from that minute, you know, that time forward. Um, if you're well received and acknowledged, um, welcomed, you know, um, even if you have to wait, if somebody puts you, invites you to sit at the bar and offers you a glass of white wine, that's so different. I mean, I find, um, I find that the codes are still pretty much respected along those lines in Paris. Um, it's kind of amazing to me sometimes in the U.S. where I go to a restaurant and, first of all, it's so noisy you can barely hear yourself think, but then, you know, it's like even after you reconfirmed your reservation 25 times and had three uh, text messages reminding you not to be late and everything else, I mean, it's, it's turned into uh, just, you know, Jesus, leave me alone. Um, and then you get there on time and you're told, oh, you know, it's going to be between 30 and 45 minutes. Right. Um, you know, why don't you have a drink? Well, you're not offered a drink. I mean, you have respected your end of the deal. Right. Um, what did they do? They overbooked or they're not? What, what, you know, what's going on here? That rarely happens in a, in a restaurant in Paris. No, or they'll pull you aside and serve you something, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it's, a whole, it's a whole other perspective. We don't have a, a, lot, a lot more time today. I want to uh, talk very quickly about uh, you and uh, Julius C. And one of my favorite little bistros, uh, Chez Georges. I'm sorry, did you hear me, Alex? Yes, I did. Okay. Oh, you... Well, Julia C., for those who don't know, we're talking about Julia Child. And uh, you walked into Chez Georges. She was uh, sitting by herself. I presume uh, something liquid in her hand. 
And she, was, she had, had very sensibly ordered a bottle of white wine when she was the first one to get there. I had been invited to a, a dinner by Gregory Usher, who was the uh, American guy from, I think he was from Seattle, um, who founded the, um, the cooking school at the Hotel Ritz, uh, the Escoffier Cooking School. It was actually, amazingly enough, founded by an American. And, uh, you know, Gregory had the idea. He had, he had come over here. I think he trained at the Ecole Varenne. Um, he'd worked with Anne Willen. Uh, he was an amazing cook and uh, uh, quite a remarkable expert in, in French food. Um, and he'd seen something I'd written and called out of the blue and said, you know, it would be fun to meet you. I'm having dinner at Chez Georges with a bunch of you know, some people from the U.S. and uh, my French partner, uh, Patrice, and so please come. And I did, and I got there early. And as you said, uh, there was an older lady sitting um, at the table who looked vaguely familiar to me, but I you know, sat down. It took me a little while before I realized who I was actually talking to. Um, you know, I mean, Ju Julia Child was at once very familiar to me because she reminded me of my aunts um, in terms of her social bearing and the way that she spoke and everything. Um, and, you know, we made light conversation, what have you, and then we discovered that she'd gone to Smith and I had gone to Amherst. And she said, well, I hated Smith. And I said, well, I wasn't particularly happy at Amherst either, so we had something to talk about. Um, and uh, she was, you know, she was witty and she was wonderful company. I mean, she, um, she, I, you know, it's interesting to see someone who you've met depicted in, in other places. I mean, everybody has their own experience of, you know, every, every personality can strike one person differently from another. I found her, uh, I think what she accomplished in her life was really quite extraordinary. And I think that the the pilot light of her career was her deep love for her husband. I think it was one of the most passionate marriages um, of an extremely passionate marriage. Um, and that, you know, she decided to learn to cook because they both liked to eat um, and just powered forward with it. And, you know, uh, was uh, uh, pretty fearless and, and then bringing everything she learned back across the Atlantic Ocean and arriving at a good time because, you know, Jackie Kennedy was in the White House and it was a time when America was still an aspiring country. You know, I mean, you aspired to dress better, eat better, live better, learn more, um, become more refined, to to grow during your life. And I, so I think that Julia, Julia's career and her knowledge and the way that she she communicated it because she, you know she had a very bluff and amusing personality television personality you know the famous thing of dropping something on the floor and saying don't worry about it you're alone in the kitchen yeah, the no three second rule before seinfeld exactly <laughs> and i you know um, i met uh I, you know, her uh, nephew i guess it was i uh, wrote it i think it was called my life in france and it really talked about that relationship with Paul, her husband, who was uh, a, a, quite a photographer. And, you know, we know we never think of her as this loving, sensual, uh, sexual kind of person, but they had a fabulous and passionate life together. Well, they were both, you know, they were, I, I think sometimes some of the most passionate, you know, passionate couples, um, people recognize something of themselves in each other, you know, they recognize reciprocal wounds and there's this desire to protect each other. And you know so well what that feels like. And, you know, you know so deeply how, how to take care of that person because it's something you feel in yourself. And I think there was a lot of that there. I mean, they were both sort of oddballs in their own way. And, um, you know, I think that was the incubus of uh, and, and the, that passion for food and wine and everything else. It was a wonderful relationship. Yeah, no, and kind of unexpected by us who would, you know, watch her on that show. Uh, no, a great, uh, she was also, you know, she was discovered by Judith Jones. Did you ever meet Judith? I did, know, uh, I did meet Judith. You know, I worked, uh, when I first moved to, when I finished college and moved to New York City, I worked in book publishing. You were random and yeah. I was at Random House, exactly. And uh, um, I was the editorial assistant to a 
one of the last great literary editors in New York, Joe Fox, who edited Truman Capote and um, Mavis Gallant and a whole well, lot Bob of Bob Gottlieb might argue with you. He's still floating around at about 89. Trying to well, he was he was at uh, Knopf. I'm glad to hear that he's still around. Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, he's know, working Bob, on Ro Bob was uh, editor in chief and um, editor in chief at Knopf, and Jason Epstein was editor in chief at Random when I was there. Um, but you know, Judith was part part and parcel of that of that, and you know that was an interesting time because. Um, cookbooks as a, I mean, you know, cookbooks were, America was affluent. And again, and this is something that people today, I think, might have trouble understanding. The country was very, people were, you know, uh, aspiring. You wanted to learn more. And there was this curiosity. I mean, you know, post-war prosperity had um, created a, a curious aspiring middle class that was starting to travel and eat better and 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 want to polish itself up a little bit um and so you know the cookbook cookbook industry really exploded during the you know the beginning of the late 50s and into the 60s and 70s uh, those were really fat fat days for cookbooks and and judith was a, not only a good cookbook editor but a wonderful editor and a wonderful person she was extremely generous to me when i, I on the few occasions we were together absolutely oh. Wonderfully generous. But I think, you know, uh, the way that, not so much that she wrote, although she did write a couple of books, but the way that she edited or encouraged her food writers to write is somewhat the way you write. You're not writing about food particularly. You know, this lettuce was cultivated without harming any goats in the, uh, in the immediate 60-mile area, but rather <laughs> the whole experience of uh, understanding it and understanding its connection to the rest of the meal. And well, you know what? I think you're absolutely right, Terrence. And what I what I often say to people is that you know, cooking is storytelling, uh, a form of storytelling. You know, and and that's why my way of talking about about food and and cooking is is to is to storytell. I mean, I think of restaurants as being like little theaters, and one of the reasons I enjoy going to them so much is that, of course, I'm I'm there because I'm looking forward to eating something delicious, but I also like the, you know, I like the little performance that night. It could be, you know, what you overhear and you see people. Um, all, everything, you know, all of life takes place in a restaurant and um, especially in Paris. And the, sure. the people watching and the drama in the dining room. And uh, it's, you know, uh, there are a thousand stories going on at the tip of your nose whenever you go to, to out for a meal in Paris. You know, going back to the writing, uh, when one of your uh, uh, one of your re first uh, restaurants, I guess, was Lamy Louis, when and I believe Antoine Magnin might have still been alive. Uh, I don't think they were eating ortolan at the time, but as you later discovered, this was uh, John Fairchild's uh, favorite restaurant, and you wrote a very honest review. Talk about that, and talk about his the reception to that review. Well, you know, I mean, La Minoui is even to this day, I would say, there are restaurants and they've ever since the Industrial Revolution or ever since restaurants have existed, there have been restaurants that are as much about conspicuous consumption um, and or uh, restaurants that are showcases of social privilege. I mean, like, sort of like uh, public private clubs. Um, you know, you go to them because you can. You can pay the exorbitant prices or you can get a reservation. Or, And so the pleasure is as much your ability to have accessed a place in, at this restaurant as it is really anything that comes to the table. Um, you know, and that's really, I mean, La Louis, uh, you know, it's very basic it's not the last time I went, I actually had a pretty good meal. Um, I don't go very often because it's way too expensive for me. Um, I cook most of those dishes better myself. Um, but I did, as you know, I, I was asked to write a review of La Minouille, um when I was at Fairchild and I did write an honest review and I was called by Mr. Fairchild and told, told by him that I knew nothing about food and to correct the review um, because, as you said, it was one of his favorite restaurants. Um, someone, you know, in, in a kinder office setting, someone might have told me that. But in any event, you know, uh, on we went. <laughs> but you didn't suffer for it. He kept, he kept you on the job. and uh, No, I, well, I, you know. No? 
No, no, yeah, no. I was, I was, I was reprimanded and told told to fix it. But uh, no, I think, I think, you know, I mean, uh, I, I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I'm grateful to Fairchild in many ways because it was my deus ex machina. It was the thing that got me, got me to Paris finally. I mean, I remember when I was, uh, you know, living in a studio in Waverly Place in New York. On sleeping in a fold-out sofa bed, and you know, following the molding around the room at night uh, by the light, golden light of the street lamp outside the window, and thinking, "How am I ever going to get out of here?" Um, you know, when you really want something, and it's sort of like burning inside of you, you're going to find a way to get it eventually. I didn't know how that would happen. You know, I mean, all I knew was when I was offered a job and. In London, I took that because at least it got me closer to Europe and I could travel more easily from London than I could from New York, and I'd already lived in London once. But I was still really, really aching to get to Paris, and that's why, you know, Fairchild, Fairchild, for better or worse, um, was a wonderful experience too because in those days, you lived really high on the hog. You know, I mean, you stayed in the best hotels in, in whatever city you were in, and nobody asked, paid much attention to your expense accounts, and... Uh, it was a very glamorous, uh, sort of like getting a PhD in luxury education. Yeah, you got um, a college education without paying for it. Exactly. A, master, no. a, a graduate education. A graduate education with a specialty in, you know, uh, old world luxury. And um, so, yeah, that was a, that was a fantastic experience. Um, eventually, though, I knew that uh, actually – um, I was doing very well at Fairchild, and as the pace quickened, I knew I, I knew I just had to go. I mean, it was not, it was not a place that I wanted. It was pretty backstabbing there, and uh, it's certainly the whole fashion, the fashion world. I mean, fashion, fashion at its at its best is magnificent. Um, the milieu can be pretty tough going. It's kind of like mixing sausages. You know, you want you don't mind seeing the address when it comes off the. Uh when the designer puts it or wraps it around a beautiful woman, but you don't want to see what goes into it prior to that. Well, exactly. And, and it, you know, it's a, it's a pretty mean world, you know? And uh, so anyway, that's why I eventually decided, okay. Um, you know, in a do or die moment, I just decided I'll, I'll jump. I had some money saved up and, um, you know, I'd started doing stuff for, you know, uh, ditzy little things for time out and various other things in, in Paris and eventually got a, my first, restaurant column in Time Out, which, you know, for people who don't know, it was the uh, sort of groundbreaking London entertainment and listings magazine that was founded in the 60s. And now is, you know, there are Time Out branded publications in many of the world's big cities. Um, it, you know, when they moved, when they decided to come to Paris uh, and they were investing some real money in it, um, that was great. It was a it was an ability to write about restaurants on a regular basis. Yeah, then you, when we first met, you had just published "Hungry for Paris." Was it the one hundred and one or one hundred and two best restaurants in Paris? It was one hundred and two, and then when we did the second edition, it went up to one hundred and nine. Um, and you know, if Random House knocked on the door, I think that they're sorry now that we didn't go for the third edition because. Uh, Happily, my place at the table even even uh, is is doing quite well, um, and you know when somebody sees your new book, then they're wondering about your other ones. So, uh, yeah, I think that yeah, they it was a surprise to me because your second book, Hungry for Paris, I believe, was published by Rizzoli, and um, that's because it was much more heavily illustrated. Okay. Random House doesn't do illustrated, books. right? Exactly, it's understood now. And no, no. Uh, so Rizzoli did uh, Rizzoli did the second book, beautiful books. Yeah, they do make they do they do very beautiful books. Uh, but you know, I wonder sometimes now. I mean, we're in a funny interregnum in terms of where we get our food information. I mean, um, you know, there is useful and good information online. But I mean, um, where where do you look? I mean, who do you, how do you decide what you're going to do? I mean, I look at a variety of different sources. There's some very good food writers in France. Mm -hmm. There's a great new publication for French speakers called Pomelo. Uh, that just was started up by Ezekiel Zoraya, um, who's a very talented writer, uh, who used to work for L'Express Steel. Um, there's Régis uh, Gaudry. Um, there, there are a couple of very, very good, you know, I, I still think the food, the fooding is fun. 
and Emmanuel Rubin and others at uh, Le Figaro are good too. I mean, France has some excellent uh, food writers. Um, and I Unfortunately, think French, most of my listeners can't can't read them. Well, that's true. I mean, the thing is, though, that I think that in the English-speaking world, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the restaurant critic columns are being pulled in a little bit. I think that um, the lure of the having an anointed expert, you know, a lot of people look at this now and say, well, why do I care what, you know, Terence thinks, I mean, I know sure. what food tastes good to me. Um, there's There's been sort of idol smashing. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a very iconoclastic reaction to people who've never grown up in a world where there were real experts, whether it's a, a, you know, a theater critic or a restaurant critic. I mean, the whole idea that there's a political correspondent, you know, it's just the, the fact that the whole media world that you and I grew up in, you know, you're reading the globe before it was bought by the times and I'm reading the times, you know, whether you necessarily agree with everything in the op-ed page, uh, you can trust that the person that's writing about a particular subject, uh, you know, Frank Rich saw lots of plays when he was a kid before he started writing about theater. Um, of course. But they and, have their chops in place. But, you know, I mean, it's it's also just the boilerplate of, for example, I mean, you know, now I do, you know, suddenly get an ache in the pain and you Google it to see what you think mm -hmm. might be the matter with you. That's fine. That's a first step. But eventually, if you're, if you're not crazy and you don't feel good, you go to a doctor because the doctor is the expert, not you. And for me, that's the same thing with, you know, I might work with an architect and give an architect some ideas of things that I would like to have in my house, but the architect knows how to make the wall stand up. Sure. Um, and I think that whether it's a book critic, a, a food writer, a, you know, in, in, in the realm of the, you know, what the French call les arts de vivre, um, that's where people have decided, oh, well, no, I don't need those people anymore. Um, and I think they're wrong. You know, I mean, I think that there's a real expertise in having had a vast amount of experience. Uh, yeah, and as long as, you know, as long as the author is honest. I know when I used to write film critic, writing movie reviews, I, I hated action films just as a, a rule of thumb. Uh, so, but my readers knew that, you know, and if I, if all of a sudden I liked something, oh, well, we got to give this a try. He hates this stuff, you know, or if I hated it, <laughs> I, I know he's going to hate it. I'm still going to go see it. You know, as, well, as, see, long the, as, you, as long as you're consistent in what you say to people. Well, see, I think you put your finger on a very important point there, Terrence, because, um, you know, there is a, and this is the difference, for example, between British and, and, and American food writing. The American uh, writers are expected to be omnivorous experts. The British writers are much more eccentric, and they'll say things like, you know, I, I would not eat mackerel. Um, at gunpoint, and it's as you as you just pointed out in, with regard to the film reviews you used to do, by letting people know what your versions are, or you know what your a prioris are, um, you're doing them a favor and you're making yourself more credible because nobody knows and likes everything. Period. You know, um, and I I think that adding that texture. I mean, I think that. Uh, the world gets busier and busier and busier. Most people, not me, but or you, perhaps. I mean, I read a lot on my computer screen, but I still like books and and things on paper. Um, and I think that you know, I'm you know one. I'm a glass half full, half empty type person in terms of my media consumption. In the future, it'll all be online and it'll all be on tablets, uh, which I think will be a great loss. But um, you know, I I'm still willing to. Um, submit to and admire the the judgment of an expert, and I think it's very important. Whatever the well, how am I be. going, for example, to turn the page one hundred five of Mireille Johnson's Queen of the, Cuisine of the Sun and see the olive oil and garlic stains that I've left on the on the recipe for Gigo Daniel over the last thirty years on a on an electronic uh, device? It's not going to happen. Or how can you? You know, I mean, if you wanted to, also, you can't. Um, and I could be wrong because I'm not that, you know, I'm not as technologically advanced as I might be. Um, you know, if you made that lamb recipe and you loved it and you wanted a friend to try it, you could, uh, zero, you know, put that book on your on your copier, make a PDF of that mm -hmm. page and send it to him or her by email. Right. You can't do that with an electronic book or, you know, even with books. I mean, when I cleaned out a whole lot of books recently, 
I don't throw books away. What I would do, you know, with English, a lot of them were like English, English language paperbacks in Paris. I think one of the great, greatest and most worst, the worst forms of poverty would be to not have something to read. I would bring three books with me every time I'd go downstairs to go to the, you know, the, the bakery or the post office or whatever it was and leave them on a park bench. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time I came back from doing my errands, they were always gone. You know, I mean, um, I like, you know, I love, I love sharing uh, the pleasure of what I've read with somebody else. Uh, and you can't do that with a, uh, with a book that's been downloaded onto a tablet. It's, no, it's, a, it's another experience entirely. I, mean, but I don't think it's going to, it won't go away. It's an entirety, but certain, I mean, I, for example, I have to read a lot of books online now to write about them because they, they will not physically send me galleys to Europe. That may change. Uh, so I've been forced to read things. I, mean, I read your book online, for example, and hopefully Houghton will send me a copy when the when it's possible. Um, but anyway, I I want to just go go back a little bit. When we first met, you were still writing for Gourmet. Your book had just came come out. Uh, you would say uh, in a culinary fashion, you were living high on the hog, and then Gourmet shuts down, and uh, your life is and your professional career is is bigger and bolder and and better than it was then. Talk a little bit about that transition, the shock, and how well, you recovered. Well, it, uh, it was a very brutal transition, you know. I mean, I found that out when the phone started ringing with French people in the French media. Uh, and eventually, you know, when the when the, uh, the Brits woke up an hour later, people were calling me and asking me for a comment because a lot of people knew me here. Uh, New York wasn't awake yet. Um, this had happened in the night. Nobody told me. So, um, you know, I would say, because I know how, uh, just in a general way, you know, I'm really not in a position to comment because I, I did not know exactly what was going on. I did I did look around and I had seen what had happened, but it had happened with such a, a brutality that I needed to know more before I said anything about it. Um, and it was, you know, it was, I mean, Gourmet, Ruth Rachel's a brilliant woman, and she was a, a, an appropriately demanding boss and a very exigent one as well. So I was hugely lucky to work for her. I mean, uh, you know, she had the, the, the means to do what she wanted to do. You know, I mean, I, my meals were paid for by that magazine, and whether it was uh, writing about restaurants in Paris or going to do a trip to Slovenia when Slovenia was first redeveloping its restaurant culture after it became an independent country. You know, I did a lot of trips like that in Europe too. Um, and they paid for, every, you know, every penny of uh, expense was paid for by the magazine because she felt so deeply that not, that to do otherwise would be to compromise my integrity, that I should be traveling anonymously and having experienced the same way that, you know, anybody else would. Um, and that was an enormous luxury. I mean, that was an enormous luxury. Uh, and she, you know, there, there was the staff in New York. Uh, there were some brilliant people on staff. So, this suddenly losing uh, this community that I'd been part of for 10 years was a terrible shock. I had to sort of regroup, you know. I mean, I thought to myself, okay, my contract had pretty much prohibited me from working for anybody else, so I had to put a lot of uh, fish hooks in the water as quickly as possible because I had a mortgage. Um, and slowly but surely, things started working out well. I mean, I started writing for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and um, started writing for the other food magazines again, so especially Supper, when um, Jim Osland was the editor-in-chief. Um, he's another wonderful, brilliant food writer who's now living in Mexico City and publishing a series of cookbooks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I wouldn't say, I didn't fall off my horse. My horse vanished is what happened when Gourmet closed. Um, but it was a good experience. I mean, I think that the stories that I wasn't able to tell um, because they weren't part of the provenance or the, the marching orders of Gourmet, I started finding other places to tell stories that I had not been able to tell before and also to write in, in uh, different voices because every publication has its own tone and voice. Um, and so in the long run, it worked out to actually, I mean, I miss Gourmet, and I think that it was a, an act of cultural vandalism to close yeah, that. I think actually. we all miss Gourmet. Yeah. Uh, 
It really was, you know, and actually what Ruth was doing, you know, I always remember when she and I had, she took me out to lunch at the Four Seasons in New York before I started working full time for her. Um, and she was talking about what she wanted to do with it in the magazine. She'd just taken over. She'd moved over there for, after being restaurant critic for the Times. And she said, you know, I have so many things I want to do, but it's like turning the, you know, the Queen Mary around. It's going to take some time. And I want to be close to the readers. I want to write about food from different points of view. I want to write about the produce and the people who, you know, produce the food, the farmers, the, the beekeepers, the winemakers. I want I want us to, to be closer to our readers. I want our recipe, um, you know, our recipes to be more global. Uh, she really, and she kind of predicted where contemporary American food culture was going. And um, she'd made a lot of progress, was making a huge amount of progress toward, the magazine was actually doing very well um, when they shut it down. Yeah, a, a, a terrible tragedy. I just want to end on a, I, we have just a few moments left, and I, I you're going to have to come back, Alex, because we haven't even begun to talk about that. Uh, by the time you get back from your travels to Greece and other parts of the world, uh, we will have had a, maybe perhaps two months worth of our restaurants being reopened, and we can examine the state of the restaurant business, uh, certainly here in here in Paris. just want to leave the readers and listeners with one thought. You talk about gastro writing, which is dull, if not leavened by humanity, humor, and emotion, and all three qualities which are richly found in your writing. Alec Lebrano, always a great to talk, and we, as usual, we could go on and on and on, but he, even in, on uh, what we'd call, I guess, internet radio, there are time limitations. Thank you very much, Terrence. It's a, always a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you very much. See you soon. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at Terrence at Paris-Expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at Paris-Expat.com. And visit Paris-Expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.